Welcome, everyone, and thank you for joining us for a discussion on the pharmaceutical M&A deal environment and outlook in the U.S. and in Europe. I'm Olivier de Villemorin, a partner in SNC's Paris office. I'll be joined today by my new partners, Frank Aquila and Matt Hurd, and by my partners, Carsten Beer from Frankfurt and uh, Jeremy Kutner from London. In 2022, the global healthcare sector accounted for nearly 325 billion in M&A activity, with five of the nine largest deals announced only in the last two months of the year, including Amgen's acquisition of Horizon for $28.5 billion, where you, Frank, advised Amgen. And this year is uh, off a very good start with Pfizer's acquisition of CGen for $43 billion. And again, we've been advising CGen. Thank you to you, Matt. That's the richest deal in the industry in over three years. I have to say, some of us find this all a little bit surprising against what I perceive to be the regulatory background here in the U.S., just thinking back three years when the US FTC voted three to two to clear Bristol Myers acquisition of Celgene. Oh, we worked on that. Frank and I worked on that on behalf of Amgen, which purchased Celgene's product Otesla to clear antitrust overlaps. So we acted on that. Uh, BMS Celgene is actually a very interesting case study in many ways. To some extent, it was a really a precursor to current FTC policy. Amgen's purchase of Otesla actually solved the competitive issues the FTC staff raised in that deal. But in their dissents, the two Democratic commissioners took aim at combinations generally in the sector, or at least combinations that would make pharma companies even bigger. Essentially, what they were attacking was size for size sake without really referencing any harm to competition. Now, remember, this was before the election in 2020, so the Democrats were in the minority. But the comments about Big Pharma that the dissenters had were certainly noteworthy at the time. And as they say, past this prologue. Well, I can understand the overall perspective. I mean, drug prices in the US are higher than they've ever been, and you don't have a, a national authority to try to limit drug prices in the same way as you do in other countries like in the UK. And as you say, Frank, since the election, there has been this general skepticism on biopharma mergers. But isn't it right that's also skepticism on big mergers altogether rather than just mm -hmm. in the biopharma sector? I think skepticism is a good word for it. As we're well aware, many combinations benefit consumers through lower prices, better service, greater innovation. While we expected the Biden administration to intervene more than previous administrations, under Chairwoman Lena Khan, the U.S. Federal Trade Commission is now questioning mergers that likely would have cleared very quickly in years past. Ms. Khan, who, as I think you know, was a former professor who's never tried an antitrust case, believes the level of scrutiny is needed to prevent companies from building up market power and stifling competition. In doing so, the FTC is actually challenging decades of antitrust legal precedent and actually practice from both Democratic and Republican administrations. It's becoming clear, at least to those of us who practice in this area, that even with transactions 
where there's no credible competitive threat, the FTC is essentially using the process as a way of making deals more expensive and heightening the risk. They're doing this by increasing the time it takes to get through the process, increasing the uncertainty of doing those deals. So even if you're doing a transaction with no anti-competitive effects, you should expect greater scrutiny on your deal. The deals still get done, but the cost of getting there is higher for both healthcare and tech deals. But we're seeing similar trends in Europe. For example, you know, the EU regulator is expanding its jurisdiction to be able to review so-called killer acquisitions, which have potential damages for European rivals. This is what we've seen, for example, in the Illumina Grail situation, where even the acquired company did not have any commercial revenue in Europe, and still the EU regulator believes that it has jurisdiction over that transaction. Right, exactly. And look, that's a transaction that is almost equally despised by both US and European regulators. But it's it's not really a biopharma deal. It's, it's not a drug deal. It's, it's a diagnostics deal. And in the pharma industry, these regulatory headwinds that we've been seeing are counterbalanced by really stark industrial realities that make M&A really an imperative for the bigger companies. There are more than 190 drugs for which the patents are going to expire by the end of this decade, and those products account for revenues of about 235 billion U.S. dollars. And this is the so-called patent cliff. And that means that the 10 biggest drug makers stand to lose around 46% of their revenues by the end of the decade, and that's 500 billion U.S. dollars. So for five of the 10, at least half of their revenues are at stake. This means that no matter how successful a company is scientifically, it's got to take steps to plug that hole. No one's been more scientifically successful than Merck, just to take a, a big pharma example. But Keytruda accounts for roughly one-third of Merck's net sales. And its U.S. patents expire in five years. The European patents expire two years after that. This is just one example that illustrates why pharma companies are still doing deals despite the overall antitrust regulatory climate. But nonetheless, the regulatory skepticism is affecting the actions taken by the regulators, right? At least that's what we are seeing in Europe. Certainly is, definitely, Karsten. I guess one way to say it is that antitrust regulators are being much more thorough and methodical in their reviews. And honestly, we all want the regulators to be thorough and to make the right determinations. No one's saying anything differently. And that takes time. So one feature in the U.S. has always been early terminations of the Hart-Scott waiting period. That feature has now been suspended for all transactions. The regulators in the U.S. simply won't grant it on any deal. The other factor is that the regulators, particularly on the FTC side, are issuing second requests. Those are requests for additional information on transactions where they simply never would have done so in the past. There are deals where there's no competitive overlap whatsoever where they are making second requests. These requests are very time-consuming and expensive to comply with, as I think everybody, or at least anyone who's ever had to comply with one of them knows. To address these dynamics, we're basically trying to use a different game plan. 
We're finding it helpful to undertake direct engagement with the regulators as early as possible after a transaction is announced. We don't reach out to regulators before the transaction is announced for confidentiality and other reasons, but we're finding that a game plan for engaging with the regulators even before we make the filings to make sure that the regulators have a steady flow of communication and information is what we need to drive the process in a manner that will allow us to resolve for a timely closing. So far, that's been working. In this respect, our work with the U.S. regulators is now resembling the process that we've long used in Europe and in other jurisdictions. It's a bit slower. It's certainly more work. But by and large, we've been getting to the right place. Yeah, I mean, that consultation process is really important, and it's changed a little bit in Europe as well. Uh, In Europe, the European regulators are more inclined to take jurisdiction over transactions that historically would have just have qualified for local, you know, national view. And in doing so, they don't seem to be guided by sales alone or even competitive dynamics across the continent, but by ideas of what sales and competition could look like in the future. In the UK, got a competition regulator, the CMA. It's not new, but since Brexit, it's kind of reinvigorated its authority and how it looks at its jurisdiction. And again, the consultation process is a really important part of discussions with the CMA and heading off you know, unexpected and unhelpful surprises and the kind of results that Microsoft just experienced with Activision. So it sounds like we are managing through those changes, but Frank, what impact do they have on deals that are actually signed? Mm-hmm. As Matt said, deals are certainly uh, getting done and closed, and they're very big deals. You know, we have deals, uh, years in which rare disease deals are hot, and years in which specialty pharma companies are doing deals with each other. But we're certainly in an environment where the industrial logic favors acquisitions of smaller, more innovative companies by the bigger global companies who can actually shoulder the burdens and the risks of commercializing and selling their products. That's a defining feature of this industry. I would say that by and large, the deals that are getting done have a more straightforward antitrust analysis than some of the more structured combinations or ambitious deals that companies have looked at in the past. Under these conditions, it's most effective to have a straightforward pathway to demonstrating either that there are no competitive issues or that any issues can be dealt with quickly, effectively, and willingly by the parties. Making it easier for the regulators means making it easier for the parties and their shareholders. Conversely, there needs to be some advanced planning around what to do if the regulators just take a different view or conceive some sort of aberrant analysis, or at least analysis that's different from our own, that the parties could not have apprehended or foreseen in advance. There's always a possibility in any M&A deal, but it's more possible today. That means parties need to be prepared to make divestitures or to take other actions in order to get their deals done if the deal triggers unanticipated regulatory focus. And if the concerns are not analytically valid, the parties need to be prepared to undertake litigation with the government. 
in the United States, antitrust laws are still made and enforced by judges, not the regulators. So parties need to do some serious thinking and negotiating if they're going to be doing deals in this area. Yeah. But negotiating about what? I mean, in the UK and Europe, we see some of the same issues. But especially in the UK, our transaction agreements and our takeover code in public company situations just don't allow the kind of transaction terms that you have here. Right. Well, look, our transaction terms have changed somewhat in the past couple of years, at least in Biopharma. First of all, in any transaction over here, you're going to have a negotiation about the regulatory covenants. The specific actions that the parties are going to undertake to resolve any issues pointed up or yielded by the antitrust, by the competition analysis. Uh, This goes beyond reasonable best efforts. Parties need to talk about and are talking about the specific actions that they're going to take to get the transaction passed, the regulators, both here and in Europe. The large pharma companies uh, are finding it more difficult than usual to sign on to so-called hell or high water covenants, which are provisions under which the bidder agrees to make any divestitures, adhere to any conduct remedies that the regulators may request. But to one of the points Frank made, they're increasingly being asked and they're willing to agree to undertake litigation with the government if needed to get the deal done. Now that covenant does not provide as much protection to the target as a hell or high water clause, but it has more frequently been used in tandem now with a regulatory break fee under which that would compensate the target in the event that the transaction doesn't close for a failure to obtain regulatory clearances. And some of these fees have been quite large, 5% or so, which the transaction values we've been seeing amounts to very high potential fees in dollar terms. Interesting. But is competition law the only area of dynamic change in the regulatory conditions that apply to pharma deals? What about the Inflation Reduction Act? What it seems to propose in terms of pharmaceutical pricing seems similar to what already exists in Europe and will be further strengthened by the proposal for the creation of a single market for medicines that was just announced as part of the updated EU pharmaceutical legislation. I think it's right to focus on the uh, Inflation Reduction Act, which is one of President Biden's legislative accomplishments. It's legislation that provides different initiatives across many different industries. For biopharma, the Inflation Reduction Act creates fewer opportunities for companies to cover the costs of innovation and demonstrates really a lack of understanding of the benefits from innovative drugs. Example, a $60,000 pharmaceutical treatment is very, very pricey. But if the alternative to that is a $600,000 organ transplant, the $60,000 pharmaceutical treatment is certainly much more cost-effective. In fact, the focus on prices is really misplaced. Pharmaceuticals only account for 12% of U.S. healthcare costs. Biopharma companies are looking at and analyzing the Inflation Reduction Act, and they're expecting effectively 31% lower revenues over the next 15 years. So how are they going to deal with that? They're going to cut R&D expenses in clinical trials. The result is going to be fewer new drugs, less innovation, 
and reduced access to breakthrough therapies, particularly for populations that already experience health equity barriers. That means different biopharma companies have different degrees of exposure to the act. And most importantly, the various global pharma companies might have different analyses about how the act will apply when they look at target companies. They all have organizations that are actively studying the impact, and it's going to affect uh, valuations when they look at doing acquisitions. Totally. Look, you can look at the impact of the Inflation Reduction Act on various companies in various ways. If, if you compare Seagen, for example, to big pharma companies, Seagen looks less impacted by the Inflation Reduction Act than almost any other company. If you look at Seagen compared to some of the clinical or preclinical companies, because Seagen actually has commercialized products, they look more exposed to the act. What matters is how does the bidder look at the company, and is the bidder seeing the impact on the target as being manageable or even more desirable than the overall impact of the act on the acquirer. Thank you, Matt. Switching a little bit, uh, Matt, uh, what about China? Are deals affected today by U.S. government's recent stand on doing business in China? Not really. Not, at least in my experience. Very few M&A targets in this industry have any meaningful presence in China. Chinese companies have all, almost never stepped forward as credible acquirers of sizable biopharma companies or assets. There are probably some regulatory reasons for that, like CFIUS, but in the context of deals getting done, China's really not a factor. Thank you, Matt. Frank, a question for you. Put yourself into the mindset of uh, the acquirer in those large biopharma deals. I know you've been there. What are you the most focused on? What should we really concentrate on? Thanks, Olivier. That really is very important. The thing I would say is that all of these deals are highly strategic. Now, you can say that about almost any M&A transaction, but a great number of objectives that many pharma companies want to achieve, they can do that through licensing transactions, collaborations, and other forms of cooperation agreements. When they engage in an acquisition transaction, it's because the target technology is too special, too strategic, as I say, to use any of these other structures. So uh, a couple of work streams become really important. First, given the regulatory issues we've discussed, antitrust planning is very important. And this is an area on which I spend a lot of my time working with our antitrust colleagues. There needs to be clear pathways to regulatory clearance, and hopefully a speedy one. It's not workable to propose a transaction to a target and then figure out the regulatory strategy later or in collaboration with the target. The target wants to know immediately the depth of the thinking and the buyer, which is typically paying a large premium, wants to be in control of the process. Second is integration planning, both before and after transaction announcement. Integration is vital in any M&A transaction, but it can gain complexity in an industry like this where value is driven by talented people and scientific technology. We can help buyers be really clear about what they need to know before a transaction is signed 
and how to move quickly between signing and closing to make sure that when closing actually happens, they are in the best position to drive value for the combined company. There are covenants in the agreement that guide us along that path, but often it just takes advice and some advocacy between signing and closing to make sure that the parties are working together and really are just synced up. Thank you, Frank. I see. And now, Matt, same question for you on the sales side. When you're advising the target on a large biopharma transaction, what are you the most focused on? Yeah, I mean, you, you would think that the perspectives on the sell side would be the flip side of the factors that Frank described, and I certainly agree with those. I agree with Frank that targets really want to know what the regulatory plan is. They really want to kick the tires on that. But after transaction value, what matters most to the seller is, of course, transaction certainty. So sellers are really negotiating those regulatory covenants hard. And by hard, I mean hard, really hard work on the regulatory covenants. And every target is really going to test the buyer on a reverse termination fee. It's never enough to compensate a disappointed target. And you have to pay taxes on it if you've got a commercialized operation. But this is a big, big, big topic. Another big topic is employee compensation. What gets a target to a place where a bigger company is interested in an acquisition is not just the technology, but the people, the target's people. And boards want to reward those people. Not just some of the people, but all the people. So those provisions get negotiated hard, and boards want to push that negotiation as hard as they can, sometimes right down to the announcement date. And, and over here, there are special taxes, the so-called 280G excise tax, that applies to senior executives in some of these high-premium, high-value deals. So. Boards typically want to make sure that their executives make their executives whole for those taxes. So the buyers, of course, see this as a money point, which it is, but it's an important money point, and there's going to be a negotiation. Thank you. Thank you, Matt, and thank you to both of you. I must say this is a very interesting industry, but at the end of the day, we're talking about M&A transactions, and you are M&A lawyers. So outside of the industry, you know, are there any interesting twists in those transactions that could apply to other M&A deals or that could be interesting to M&A practitioners that are not necessarily involved in the pharma industry? You're right, Olivier. One thing we see in biopharma deals is extensive negotiations about transaction value. These deals are highly strategic, as I mentioned before, so the premiums tend to be higher than in many other industries. But there are inevitably valuation gaps between what the targets board expects based upon what they think their technology is worth and what the buyer is prepared to pay unconditionally in cash. So even in some of these very large transactions, people are considering and negotiating pretty substantial earnouts. Whether they ultimately include them in the deal or not, people are thinking about them and negotiating them. One example that you worked on, Matt, it's a little far afield, but still illustrates the point. Right. Well, that would be J&J's acquisition of Abiumed, which is really a med tech deal. But J&J, of course, is also a big pharma player. So look, like always in Biopharma, there can be differences of opinion on value. We have been seeing earnouts. No, no deal is too big for an earnout anymore or a CBR. And there's often going to be a 
difference of opinion on valuation. How much is the R&D platform worth as opposed to the commercialized products? And people are really negotiating the value of that technology platform because there's substantial value in that for the bidder, and the bidders admit it. They just can't quite value it in a manner that targets often feel is appropriate. So one solution is the so-called Biohaven model. This is the deal that, that you worked on, on last year, Frank, where shareholders really got the best of both worlds. They received cash for their shares, okay, and they received uh, shares in a spinco that still held the R&D assets, the, the R&D engine, if you will, and they can continue to participate in the value of the R&D platform after they've received cash for the shares and after the bidder has gone away with the commercialized products. That's really the holy grail. In this industry, people, as we know, they've been trying to do this since J&J successfully did it with Actelion in Switzerland. Lots of targets have talked about it. In Biohaven, they finally did it. And um, people are still, even if they don't pursue this type of structure, they're still using it as a mechanic for focusing and discussing the value of the technology platform. Thank you, Matt. Thank you, both of you. Now, one final question, Frank and Matt. In the current environment, what are your predictions for the end of the year in terms of deal making and pipeline? Maybe, Frank, do you want to start? Sure. That's really a very interesting question, and actually it's the one that I get asked about most often. Let me see if I can take a crack at an answer. Pharmaceutical companies, especially the big ones, are generally very well-run companies, and they're becoming even better-run companies as they focus where they want to be at the end of the decade. And they divest non-core assets to sharpen that focus. We've been a part of a number of those transactions. In addition to strategy, they're very disciplined financially. Life science companies have about a trillion and a half dollars in cash. Uh, we call it firepower to use for M&A. And that's up 10% year on year. So the financial health of the industry is very well matched to the strategic imperatives driven by the industry fundamentals that we discussed earlier. These deals are completely bespoke. People overlook how unique the match between a target and an acquirer often needs to be. But the financial conditions in the industry are actually tailwinds, not headwinds. I totally agree with that. Look, the innovation in this area is just huge. There are 6,000 products in clinical development. Okay, that's a very, very fertile field. And two-thirds of them are being developed by emerging biotechs, not by big pharma. That's a huge number of opportunities for big pharma to replenish its portfolio. And the innovation is just going to continue, at least in the short and medium term. There have been huge advances in cell and gene therapies. mRNA technology, which really drove these miracle vaccines that took us out of COVID, it's a very powerful platform. You have AI, big data, distributed ledger technology, very powerful resources being harnessed to drive innovation. And there's going to be interfaces with all sorts of other sectors to improve outcomes like healthcare IT. So Frank's been working with pharma companies since the mid-80s. I've been working with these companies for, for my whole career. I don't think we've ever seen conditions that are so interesting, so intriguing. So I'm optimistic, not just for the companies, but for innovators, for patients. We should all be very optimistic. Thank you. That brings us to the close of our webinar. 
On behalf of the panel, we want to thank you for joining us today. If you have any questions regarding these or other topics, please do not hesitate to reach out to any of us or your other SNC contacts. For more information about Sullivan and Cromwell and our practices, please visit our website, saltcrom.com, and we look forward to seeing you again. Thank you.